One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Censored, the podcast charting Irish history's dirtiest, sexiest moments and why we couldn't talk about them. I'm Aoife Vrutnach, a historian obsessed with smutty novels and forbidden sexy stuff. If you're able to support the podcast, there are links in the show notes to merch and my Patreon page. Or you could share this episode with three other people, because everyone loves a bit of Roger Casement drama. This is episode two on Roger Casement, His Lives and Loves. In part one, I read out bits of his diaries, discussed authenticity, and took the chronology from 1916 to 1959. So a quick recap. In 1959, the handwritten diaries are in the public record office in London, where a select few can see them. There's also been a limited run of a version of the 1901 and 1903 diaries published by Olympia Press, who are famous for selling smut from Paris. Roger himself is still buried in the prison yard of Pentonville Prison in London. And it's Roger's bones, rather than the boners he was obsessed with, that are the stars of this episode. The British government controls both bones and the boners in the diaries in 1959, and this is a problem for the Irish administration. Getting Roger back home was an important political objective for the independent Irish state. Before his execution, he had asked that he be taken from Pentonville to be buried in Ireland. His family then bought a plot in County Antrim, a part of Ireland that later remained part of the British state after 1922. The Irish government supported the family claims to his body and a compromise was finally reached. The British government allowed the remains to be repatriated for burial in the Republic, but not Northern Ireland. So, in February 1965, Casement was dug up, put in a coffin and flown to Ireland for a state funeral. You might think that was it. Job done. Scandal over. It was all resolved. Well, you couldn't be more wrong because a juicy scandal isn't killed off that easily. This episode is about the enduring controversy around Caseman's body and diaries, about attempts to claim the man as a patriot, a gay icon, or a flawed hero that went on for decades. But first off, let's look at his exhumation and reburial, because it's gruesome, ghoulish, and entirely fascinating. Like I said, the Irish government had been asking London for his body since 1929. The thing is, in Britain and Ireland, the bodies of executed criminals were buried within the jail where they died. Their graves were usually unmarked. Sometimes it was within, like, a common exercise yard. There wouldn't necessarily be a proper defined graveyard. 
This was a form of post-mortem punishment, a continuation of a jail sentence after death. Criminals were denied burial among their kin within a normal cemetery or churchyard. They became the outcast dead forever, defined by their criminality. Naturally, this afterlife sentence was extremely painful for living relatives who were not allowed to make their own burial arrangements. In the case of Casement, the state added extra ignominy to the burial. His body wasn't put in a coffin, not because none were available in Pentonville, but because it was a deliberate policy choice, an expression of post-mortem hatred and degradation. The treatment of Casement's dead body was exceptionally cruel, even by the standards of executed criminals. A prison doctor was asked to examine his body for signs of his, quote, immoral perversion, unquote, that is, to determine if he had had anal sex. I mean, fucking hell, what a grotesque post-mortem. After this indignity, Casement was placed in a grave and covered with quicklime. Some documents use the word naked, which conjures up the image of a bare corpse, entirely unclothed. But I'm not sure that's what it means. Outside of this podcast, my research obsession is the burial of the dead, and naked is often a synonym for coffinless. Casement may have been wrapped in a shroud before he was placed in the grave. When he was dug up, the skull had cloth stuck to it, which was interpreted as a shroud at the time. So he wasn't stark naked, but he was not buried with the bare minimum of decency that the standards of the day expected, even for an executed prisoner. Obviously, these gory details were not common knowledge in 1916, but everyone understood that the purpose of prison burial was to prolong the shame of conviction forever. It was also designed to prevent martyrdoms growing around the reburial of these dead prisoners. In spite of the attempt to squash a cult around Casement's remains, the retention of his body within the prison actually fostered one. I know, right? So contradictory. Lots of people agitated to get him dug up and reburied in Ireland. There were repatriation committees in Ireland and England. Sinn Féin clubs got involved, the family members, their legal representatives, and, of course, the Irish government. Representations were made, letters were written, and lectures held. Nothing much really happened until a fortuitous change of government, when Labour's Harold Wilson became Prime Minister. Once the state funeral for Winston Churchill was safely over, once the state funeral for Winston Churchill was safely over, London deemed it politic to release Casement's remains to the Irish government. The conditions unofficially agreed on were burial south, not north of the border, and no excessive anglophobic nationalist triumphalism at the funeral, please. Once the Irish agreed, the exhumation was quickly organised in February 1965. It was a bit of a last-minute decision, apparently. The exhumation was recorded in great detail by Paul Keating, a diplomat on the scene. I first read this report years ago, when I was researching an MPhil on diplomatic history. It was, without doubt, the highlight of two years of research. This report was extraordinarily gripping. As you would expect, the diplomats described every tiny detail, which British officials they met and what they said. But they also described the weather. They made it quite atmospheric for a government report. As was typical, the exhumation was conducted at night 
and this was to prevent rubberneckers within the prison or even tabloid journalists getting ghoulish photographs. It was a dark, rainy, sleety evening. Because it was February, it was dark enough at 5pm for work to begin. The exhumation party, at one point 15 people strong, stood at the edge of the grave as prison officers dug into the heavy London clay with shovels and pickaxes. Two spotlights illuminated the labouring men and a brazier was lit, so everyone could warm their hands in between work. The grave was believed to be ten foot deep, so it was long, slow and heavy work. After two and a half hours digging, they hit a layer of lime. And this is a direct quote from the report. Two teams of prison officials dug steadily and at about 7.30 were surprised to come across a layer of lime. Immediately below it was a very thick mud and water. Floating on top of it there appeared two small black objects which on examination by a doctor turned out to be two bones of the thumb. And this is the first sight of Casement's physical remains as they as they float to the top of this layer of muddy water that's in the grave. It's really quite eerie. So the work has to pause because there's just too much water there. So they pump out the grave. And then the report continues. At this stage, the diggers had left a step at each end of the grave and were excavating mainly in the middle. In this hole in the middle, we came across the arm bones, the bones of the pelvis and many ribs and vertebrae. We also came across the thigh bones. These were all extremely well preserved by the action of the lime, though very much blackened by it and encrusted with soil and lime itself. We got some water and had them washed and dried and put in the coffin. So slowly, bit by bit, they're recovering these human remains from a sludge, really. As the skeleton was fished from the mud, the Irish officials were getting worried about the skull. They wanted it to be found whole, not shattered, but they were concerned that it would be broken if the workers continued to use pickaxes. So one of the prison officers, Mr McKay, volunteered to search very carefully with his own hands. And this is from the report again. With his hands explored in the mud until he located the skull and managed to bring it not only intact, but with some of the shroud which had in some way or other protected it from the ravages of the quicklime, so that there was an element of skin remaining, as well as quite a lot of the scalp, with quite a lot of black hair growing on it, in the manner in which one would expect from the photo scene of Sir Roger. I mean, this is a remarkable moment. The bureaucratic style of Keating's writing cannot diminish the seriousness, the sense of a great moment that would echo in cultural life. Finally, the bones of the martyred hero have been revealed. It's amazing. The intact cranium was left to dry, then placed in the coffin. They didn't rinse it in case they washed away the fleshy parts still stuck to it. This was the only flesh found in the grave. The skeleton had broken up into its constituent parts as the muscles, sinew and skin had decayed. None of that unruly flesh that Casement was so famous for survived. By the end of a long evening, the prison doctor estimated that about three-fifths of the body, say 60%, had been recovered. The Irish were much more optimistic, thinking it was more like 85%. 
I don't know which number to choose here. The medical doctor would know more about skeletons, but he appears to have been particularly disinterested and perhaps even slightly hostile to this work, according to the memo that Keating wrote. On the other hand, the Irish, not medically qualified, they're just diplomats, and perhaps determined that the vast majority of his skeleton would be recovered. After all, what does it mean if you leave bits of him behind? It's an awkward question. They did acknowledge that small bones from the hands and feet were probably missed in the grave's sodden sludge, or perhaps even pumped out with the water. But they were very happy that the remains were casement himself, because the British map of the burial ground was so detailed, and because the leg bones suggested a very tall man. The lead-lined coffin was sealed and then flown to Dublin the next day. Secrecy was preserved throughout. The plane crew weren't told why they were diverted to RAF Northolt to collect this body. But once that plane landed in Baldonnell Aerodrome, the secrecy evaporated, replaced by publicity, pomp and circumstance. The subsequent funeral took five whole days as he moved from Baldonnell to the military chapel in Arbor Hill to the Catholic pro-cathedral in Dublin city centre and then finally to Glasnevin Cemetery. There was more snow, more fucking rain and I'm sure everybody was frozen. Makes me wonder why all our significant national events are in March. St. Patrick's Day is usually Baltic cold as well. Is there some penitential impulse urging us to suffer for our patriotism? Completely unnecessary. Regardless, the frigid temperatures didn't keep people away. Thousands lined the streets as Casement's body was moved around. When the cortege passed, people were seen blessing themselves. This was a state funeral, but more importantly, it was a military one. Uniformed soldiers, military musicians, martial music, the whole works. The president of Ireland, Eamon de Valera, and a survivor of the 1916 Rising, gave the graveside oration, bareheaded in a cloak. It was a personal, as well as political triumph for Dev, who had lobbied for the repatriation since the 30s. Newspapers covered the funeral extensively, it was recorded for telly, the schools and businesses in Dublin closed for the day. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This was a pretty massive event in the life of the nation, comparable to Britain's experience of Winston Churchill's funeral just a few months earlier. And that, from the point of view of the government, should have been that. The dead hero was finally returned, given all of the rites and rituals he had been denied, as well as the adulation of the political classes and the nation. Except, that wasn't the end, really. In the pubs and clubs of Ireland, talk soon turned to the bones in the coffin. Was all of casement in there? And was it really casement after all? Wits joked that it was probably Dr. Crippen, an infamous murderer who was buried with such solemnity. Maybe the bones of the executed in Pentonville jail got mixed up, and instead of great patriot, the Irish state had gone all out for a man who'd buried his wife in the basement. Wouldn't that be both delicious and nonsensical? Just to puncture that kind of quickly, the burial map that the British had showed that Casement was buried between men called Coon and Robinson, who were just ordinary murderers, not celebrity killers. He still could have been mixed up with someone else, of course. Who knows, there was no DNA testing to check. Perhaps this rumour was inevitable in a funerary culture where we view the dead body before closing the coffin. But I think it says more about the anxiety over Casement the Man. After watching the funeral, Richard Murphy wrote a poem called Casement's Funeral, and this hints at some of the unease that's going on. I found it cited in Lucy McDiarmid's excellent essay, The Afterlife of Roger Casement, by the way. Great read, well worth going out to find. But this is a verse from Murphy's poem. From jail yard to the liberator's tomb, pillared in frost, they carry the freed ash, transmuted relic of a death cell flame which purged for martyrdom the direst's flesh. Interesting how he just can't resist referring to the binary opposition between martyrdom and Casement's fleshy desires here. Even when his bones are being celebrated and turned into this relic, there's still an irrepressible desire to talk about Casement's sexuality and what that might mean. The state wanted to make him into just a rebel, but his rebellious sexuality just won't go away. The diaries are still there in the back of people's minds. Nobody could unknow the knowledge of the sex life they described. Even if they've never been extensively quoted anywhere at this time, everybody's aware there's something in those diaries that they should know. And all this talk over how genuine the bones were, this crisis over whether it was Dr. Crippen or not, was just a repetition of the authenticity debate over the diaries. After years of querying the writing, it was impossible not to question the body as well. This, of course, was the opposite of the government policy, which had always tried to separate the body from the diary. Since the 1930s, de Valera had maintained that the diaries were 
completely irrelevant to the place casement occupied in the Martha's Pantheon. Successive governments pestered the British for the body, but never wanted to talk about the diaries. When I read these files, I used to giggle over the minutes of meetings, where Irish diplomats would ask for the body, then the British would reply, no, not really, and then ask, how about the diaries? Are you interested in them as well? I mean, this was just top trolling. They knew full well the diaries were kryptonite in Dublin. As Colm Tobin memorably wrote, Southern Ireland wanted casement's bones since they held no secrets and could not speak. But the diaries were and still are dynamite and the English, as we all know, are better at handling that sort of thing. The problem the Irish faced, of course, was that there were a fair few people within their administration and their political class who believed the diaries were genuine. The public rhetoric from the government was sidestepping the issue But some people did think that Casement had written them. The director of the National Library, Dr Hayes, was convinced that they were not forged. Now, the only way the Irish would take the diaries was that if they could prove they were false. But since they had a feeling this wasn't going to be possible, they decided they weren't interested. So the diaries stayed in London when Casement's bones were coffined and flown home. Getting to read them was always difficult. But Angus Mitchell, one of those who studies casement, claims that the Irish government in 1965 asked the British to further restrict access. If this is the case, Dublin was trying to shut down any more discussion of Casement's unruly body, to fix his memory as a great hero of the state, to transform all those vigorous, thrusting boners into bony relics once and for all. This policy ties in, of course, with the censorship of a book about the trial of Roger Casement. This was banned in 1964, just a year before he was flown home. I know it seems ridiculous. The Irish censor banned an account of British perfidy and Irish martyrdom. The irony levels are pretty much off the scale here. Now, it wasn't Casement's speech from the dock that made it banned, of course. It was because it contained excerpts from the 1910 diaries, which were the most explicit. So after the burial of the great man in 65, there was little hope of anyone in Ireland getting to read his raunchy diaries, published or not. And this was achieved through censorship and censure. It's a double whammy of official and unofficial suppression. It's pretty neat, actually, covers all the bases and just shows you how important it was to control the image of casement for the Irish state. That's pretty much how things stayed until 1994, when the diaries finally burst out of the archives. The original documents were open to the public, meaning anyone could walk in off the street and read them. There was no more writing letters to ministers for permission. They were completely open access. Transcriptions of the diaries have been published since, as different people copy down what Casement wrote and interpret what he meant. At this stage, of course, the Irish censor is pretty quiet, so none of these publications have ever been banned. In fact, in 1994, the Irish newspapers began to quote extensively from the diaries. The Sunday Independent reproduced some of the -the deep-to-the-hilt quotes and told their readers there were frequent references to other men's erections. Which is a pretty accurate summary of the diaries, really. 
Some other broadsheets were more reluctant. The Cork Examiner, which was the paper taken in my parents' home at this time, hedged its bets, saying, Casement undoubtedly had strong homosexual tendencies. Yeah, right, lads, understatement of the year. Now, there was very little quotation in the Examiner. The editorial line was definitely playing it safe perhaps because Cork has a vocal, reactionary and conservative minority. The Irish Times, true to its anti-censorship heritage, published lengthy, explicit excerpts from the dirtiest of the diaries. As Lucy McDiarmid points out, they published them during Holy Week, the highest point of the Christian liturgical calendar. I mean, that's pretty naughty. So really, 1994 marks the end of censure of Casement's sex life. It's perhaps no coincidence that homosexual sex between consenting adults was legalised just the year before. It was some journey that Casement, his body and diaries, took from 1916 to 1994. But unbelievably, that was not the end of it. I know, I, I was shocked. I thought it was surely over at this point. But in May 2000, the Taoiseach of the day, Bertie Ahern, opened a symposium where they once again debated the authenticity of the diaries. I mean, seriously. The government's official representative hoped that new tests would show the diaries were forged so that Casement's reputation as a humanitarian could be separated from his sexuality. Deja vu or what? It's 2000, but Dev's policy from the 1930s is still alive and kicking. As McDiarmid points out, the dead man's lusty and promiscuous sexuality was still seen as a form of pollution. The symposium led to a steering group, which commissioned a handwriting expert to assess the diaries. Part of the money for this came from the office of Antishach. The Irish state paid for this. So in the early 2000s, Taxpayers' money was being spent on working out if the casement diaries were forgeries or not. I mean, really, what is going on with the politicians? That he was gay should no longer be a problem. It's nine years since the decriminalisation of homosexuality. People at this point really needed to stop taking casement's sex life personally and stop forcing him to be some sort of bloodless martyr. The handwriting expert who wrote the report claimed that she was convinced the diaries were written by one person and that person was Roger Casement. Thankfully, the Taoiseach accepted the report in 2002, so the Irish state was officially over it. I mean, it only took 80 years, but you know, at least they got there. But you know, I think you could argue his diaries were just as important as his human rights reports. I don't like this, you know, human rights reports, super important, diaries irrelevant argument. He wrote joyously and without guilt about his sex life at a time when his desires were defined as pathological and illegal. Casement seems to have been living his best life in spite of the profound homophobia of his society. How many of us can escape the deep social prejudice we're raised with, even when they warp our personal lives? Casement's enthusiastic embrace of his sexual desire is kind of inspirational. Now, I know you're going to say that he was a predator who exploited younger, poorer men and boys, that he was often a sex tourist. And yes, most of the sex in the diaries is commercial, inflected by great power inequalities. 
But his status as a gay icon isn't simply the sex, but his unrepented attitude to it. And it wasn't like he could choose between cruising and a stable relationship out in the open with an equal. All the sex he wanted was illegal, regardless of age or social status. It was a quandary he couldn't really fix, so he chose to ignore it, to wander the streets of Buenos Aires, London and Dublin, checking out men in tight trousers. The Roger Casement of the diaries is having great fun, and that, more than anything, seems to upset people. He didn't censure himself, so others have taken it upon themselves to do it for him. And of course, it goes without saying, you do not have to like a historical figure's sex life to acknowledge their achievements. Enough with the hero worship. It's really unfair to everybody. But what a journey. All the controversies around Casement, whether about his bones or his boners, are rich cultural moments. I could go on and on, much like the authenticity debate, but I need to stop somewhere. One thing I'd recommend you do is read the diaries. Now that you are entirely free to do so, you should embrace the opportunity. Censorship or censure doesn't stand in your way anymore. Next time, I'll be exploring how visual art could provoke spasms of outrage. I know a podcast about visual art is a challenge, but it's a really important part of the censure story, so we have to try. Till then, keep your hands clean and your minds filthy dirty. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.